Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're the 15th chapter now. As you're turning there, we'll do a little review. Now, over the past several weeks, we've seen the great compassion of Christ on display. Uh, when Jesus heard about the news of John the Baptist's murder in chapter 14, verse 13, it tells us that Jesus withdrew. And that indicates that he was intending to take some time to kind of hide out for a little bit, uh, to keep a low profile. John had been killed by King Herod, and Jesus was now in danger from both the political leaders and the religious leaders. But Jesus couldn't keep a low profile. Why? Because there were hurting people everywhere. And it was within Jesus' power to heal them. So he, compassion compelled him to heal even though it would bring more people to him. People would flock to him. And as people flocked to him, as they heard about this thriving, reverberating ministry, there would be more attention from those who had it out for him. But Jesus couldn't help it. His compassion, once again, it compelled him to act, to serve, regardless of the repercussions it had toward him personally. And the news of his ministry and his popularity continued to spread. And now, sure enough, here we are in chapter 15, and we will see Jesus in the midst of another confrontation in Matthew 15, 1-6. God's Word says... Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. And he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' accusers. We're going to look at their accusation and Jesus' answer. That's where we're going to be going right from this text. So beginning with Jesus' accusers in verse 1, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Well, who are these accusers? Why does it matter that they came from Jerusalem? Well, first we've got the Pharisees. At the time of Christ, the Pharisees were looked at as the holiest men around. And there's a lot of good that we can actually say about them. They get a really, really bad rap, but there's actually a lot of good that you can say about the Pharisees. They were right about a lot of stuff that the rest of the Jews kind of took for granted or, or didn't think about. First, that God had judged His people Israel by allowing them to be conquered by ungodly nations because they had worshipped idols and forgotten His law. They recognized that there was consequences for their ignoring of the law of God. Well, that's commendable, isn't it? Secondly, that the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant and that the law was the terms of that covenant. It says right before the giving of the law in Exodus 20 and Exodus 19, 5 and 6, if, that's a great big two-letter word, guys, if 
you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then, if then, if you'll do this, obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So for them, it followed that the law had to be kept in order to obtain God's favor and to usher in the messianic age where these enemies who had overtaken them would finally be overthrown. They studied the law, therefore, very carefully and they made a determined attempt to put it into practice. They wanted to live righteously according to God's law. But since the law is sometimes ambiguous, they came up with a whole lot of man-made explanations of the law's intent. They paid close attention to a bunch of rules called the, the tradition of the elders. Another word for that is the halakha. You, that, that it, the form for when you recognize it, it would be, you have heard it said of them of old. Or you have heard the ancients say. You've heard that, haven't you, in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling it out explicitly. That was their tradition that they looked to. It, it was meant to help the people avoid breaking any command of God. That's what they had it in place for. That's what they thought that it did. Well, that's honorable, isn't it? And there, there were so many of these rules that most people even gave up the attempt to follow them. But the Pharisees didn't. They held to them scrupulously. Therefore, the average Jew looked to them as the most holy and righteous man imaginable, up on a pedestal that you just can't imagine. Unfortunately, there were some dangers that came with this sort of renewal movement. With the good came some bad. And what is the bad? Well, they were self-righteous. It led to them being self-righteous. The moniker Pharisee actually comes from a word meaning separated. And that's how they saw themselves. They viewed themselves as God's separated ones from all the rest of the Jews. So they tended to see themselves as a cut above other people and they looked down on others. They strongly believed, this is MacArthur, in God's sovereignty and in divine destiny and that they alone were the true Israel. It was them and them alone. So they became, because of this self-righteousness, a sort of calloused elitists that looked down their nose on everyone else that didn't do exactly according to their traditions and their interpretations and how they viewed things. They broke into these different schools of thought under different rabbis. They even squabbled over who was more right about the Holocaust and how it was rightly to be interpreted and rightly to be kept. In chapter 9, verse 10 through 11, Jesus was reclining at a table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Why? Well, Jesus loved tax collectors and sinners. That's good news for you and I, isn't it? But when the Pharisees saw this, remember, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And you need to say it that way when you say it. Because there was disdain in their hearts toward these people. They were, in their minds, unredeemable. They were just dirty, unclean people that needed to be avoided. They had no compassion for the ungodly. They believed them to be beyond saving, and they were okay with that. Since they tried to keep the law, the masses that did not follow their teachings were no better than the Gentiles in their mind. You just needed to completely stay away from them. 
In John 7, 47-49, it says the Pharisees answered these people that were recognizing Jesus' ministry and actually some officers that refused to arrest Jesus. And they said, you've not been led astray also, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed on Jesus, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Even though they were Jews, they looked down their, their nose and they said, hey, being Jews, and they're kind of right and they're kind of wrong. Being Jews isn't good enough to get you into heaven. They're kind of right. But they had no compassion to try to teach them anything that was righteous. And as we'll see, their standard actually wasn't righteous anyway. That's the third problem with them. Not only are they self-righteous, not only are they calloused elitist, but their righteousness wasn't righteous at all. There were many problems with it. It was an external, formal righteousness that ignored the heart. You can't be compassionless like that and be righteous in any real sense. So Isaiah actually prophesied of a time when, the, when his people Israel would twist the law and the Messiah would come and restore it. It says that in Isaiah 42, 19 through 21. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? And that's how they saw themselves. Isaiah's pointing forward to them and blind as the Lord's servant. Seeing many things, but thou observes not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. And the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it once again honorable. That's what Jesus is coming to do. To fix their twisting of the law where they've messed it up and made it an external formal righteousness only. So Jesus tells us that this is fulfilled in the Pharisees and their halakha, the tradition of the elders. Later in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites or mask wearers. For you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. These external things. You Make sure you pay your tithe. You know you can be a tither and be a really wicked person. You know you can be the top giver in your church and really be so far from God it's crazy. You can be maybe the most wicked person in the entire church and be the biggest giver. Did you know that? That's very possible. But he said, You tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done and not neglected these others. So, and he, also, he, says, he then says in verse 24, he calls them, you blind guides. What's he referring back to? That Isaiah 42 prophecy. You blind guides who strain at the gnat and swallow a camel. Although they gave great attention to outward observance of the law, they lost sight of the weightier measures. Look forward in, in chapter 15 here where we are in 15, 12 through 14. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended? The disciples are concerned because Jesus offends the Pharisees. When they heard this statement in verse 13, He answered and said to them, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall in the pit. It's, this is His servant Israel who is teaching and telling people to see, but they don't see themselves. And it's leading everybody that's following their tradition into empty formalism. That's who the Pharisees were. When we move on, it's not only the Pharisees who came, but it's also the scribes. Uh, in, a, in the technical sense of the word, this scribe is literally just someone who wrote. That's what the word means. 
While the Jews were in exile, scribes, the first of whom was, was Ezra, began to assemble and copy the various books of Scripture written at that time. So they wrote them and wrote them and wrote them. We, we wouldn't have them today. If it wasn't for scribes, we wouldn't have the Scriptures today. We'd be very thankful for scribes. But they also began to make comments on various passages that seemed unclear. So as they wrote the Scriptures, like, what does this mean? And they would write, over in the margins, and so that people, they would clarify what they thought this probably meant. And gradually, a larger and larger accumulation of interpretations was developed until there was actually more interpretation than there was Scripture. There were more rules than the Scripture actually said. Well, what does this mean? Well, we better, to be sure we cover the bases of what God means, let's make sure we do this, 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 and this, and let's add on this, just to be safe. That's where the tradition of the elders began. And it was out of that that the Pharisaic movement arose. Among the Jews, the term scribe had evolved to include any man who was a learner, an interpreter, or teacher of the law, according to the tradition of the elders. We'll spend less time talking about the scribes than we did the Pharisees, but not because they're any less relevant. The reason is because basically everything we said about the Pharisees is also true about the scribes. Both the scribes and the Pharisees held to the same exact tradition of the elders that often minimized or even contradicted God's true word. The difference is that the Pharisees were more of a grassroots movement than the scribes. The Pharisees, in other words, they, kinda, they had their day job. And they were Pharisees on the side. Whereas scribes often wrote and copied texts as their vocation. The scribes were the scholars of Judaism. Their job was to study and interpret the Scripture. They were the theologians of Judaism. So there were fewer of them. And with many of them being members of the Sanhedrin court, they were understood by all to have a judiciary function too. They were kind of official. They were kind of a little bit more of an intimidating group because they had an even more clout than the Pharisees did. You look at the Pharisees as lobbyist groups and scribes kind of as the enforcers of the law, the lawmakers. So let's consider now what the, what the Pharisees and the scribes did. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, notice this. They didn't just run into each other. That happens a lot. Uh, up to this point, we've seen that happen a lot. We've never seen the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus. We've seen them run into each other and then have an interaction because of it. Okay? They didn't just cross paths. They didn't just interact when Jesus happened upon them as Jesus was passing through their town or their city. They came to Jesus. Now, why would they do that? Well, Jesus set himself in opposition to them from the Sermon on the Mount on, from the very inaugural address. That's how you should look at the Sermon on the Mount. That's him saying, hey, I'm here to be Messiah now, and this is how it is. This is what a kingdom citizen looks like. And he's not very far into that inaugural address when in 520 he says, For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of who? The scribes and the Pharisees then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He then quoted their tradition verbatim six times in chapter 5, verse 21 through 48, saying, you have heard it said of them, but I say unto you. He's putting himself, hey, you've got their tradition, but I have more authority than they or their tradition. And then he corrects it by showing how it's a perversion of God's law. 
Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in 6, 1 through 18, Jesus doesn't mention them explicitly, but he mentions three of their practices. He talks about their alms. He talks about their public prayers. And he talks about their weekly fasts. And he doesn't just bring it up, but he mercilessly mocks their ostentation. How that they do it to be seen of men. He likens their righteousness to a dramatic performance in a theater. And he calls them hypocrites, which means mask wearers. So he's basically saying you're practicing your righteousness, which the word is theonomai, where we get the word theater. You're in a theater production wearing your mask. It's not really who you are so that you can look righteous in front of people. And if you do that, you have your reward already. So once again, in chapter 6, he's saying the scribes and Pharisees, they're not going to be in the kingdom. He might not have called them out by name, but he might as well have. It's like a preacher getting up there and talking about your specific sins, but he don't say your name, and you kind of get mad. Do you think they kind of knew who he was talking about, and they kind of got mad? Uh, yep. Sure enough. He tells them to beware of performing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Notice performing your righteousness before men. It's an act. To be noticed, the, the anomai. And otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And he touches every... Not only does he call them out so, you know, mercilessly, mocking them in the Sermon on the Mount, but he touches everything that they say he can't touch in the next chapter. In chapter 8, he touches a leper. You can't touch lepers, but Jesus did. Chapter 8, verse 3. And he offers to go into a Gentile's house. You know where you couldn't go? Couldn't go into a Gentile's house. He's like, hey, let me go to your house and heal your servant. The Gentile's even like, hey, man, you don't need to do that. <laughs> you can just say the word and everything will be okay. And he heals him. But he offered to go into their house, which was against the tradition of the elders. And he touches Peter's mother-in-law. Well, men just didn't touch women that weren't their wives in that day. They might be ceremonially unclean. And then you could be unclean. So you just didn't touch a woman. He touches everything they say that he shouldn't be touching. And then, because of that, the scribes and Pharisees, they start looking for fault in him. You ever notice if somebody calls you out for your sin, your default is to start looking to be able to call them out for what you perceive as sin in them? It's called immaturity, but we all have a bit of it, don't we? Somebody calls you out for your fault, so you're like, hey, I bet you've got faults too. And then we start looking at them with a magnifying glass. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. In chapter 9, verse 2 through 3, they brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, What? This fellow blasphemes. Hey, look, he's a, this guy that said we're not even going to get in the kingdom, he's a blasphemer. A few verses later, in chapter 9, verse 10 through 11, it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table of the house, the tax collector's thing came up. And what did the Pharisees say? He's dining with tax collectors and sinners. He must be one just like them, leading people to be around those awful people like that. And then chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Jesus' disciples, and Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Pick, pick, pick. And then in chapter 12, 9 through 10, they went after the grain field incident. They went into the synagogue and there was a man there who had a withered hand and they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask that question? 
so that they might accuse him. Jesus didn't care if they were going to accuse him. He was a compassionate man. He saw the man that needed to be healed, and he healed his withered hand. And what was their response to that miracle? Chapter 12, 13 through 14, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they might destroy him. So basically the last interaction that we've had is the Pharisees are now fed up with Jesus thumbing his nose at their traditions and their teachings and now they're conspiring of how they might destroy him. And next we're, we're seeing this encounter and there's different scribes and Pharisees who are coming to him from Jerusalem. Well what, what does that tell us? Well the attack now is becoming heated and organized. That's what it tells us. Jerusalem was the location of the temple. And the most eminent scholars of Judaism were in where? Jerusalem. So the local scribes and Pharisees seem to have gone up the ladder to the big show. They went up to the big dance where all the big, the big heavyweights are. They went to the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem to get their help. If, I want, if we want to get rid of Jesus, we're not going to be able to do this without going over our heads to somebody with more authority, more clout than we ourselves have. It's possible, if not likely, that the Galilean scribes and Pharisees went to the Sanhedrin, to the high Jewish council in Jerusalem, to... Uh, announce what Jesus had been doing. All this list of things I just told you of how Jesus had set himself against their tradition, how he had violated their tradition again and again by the people he had talked to and the things he had done, the things he had touched and what he had done on the Sabbath in violation to the tradition of the elders. And this delegation of experts from Jerusalem would have carried a lot of ecclesiastical weight because these scribes and Pharisees had prestige and learning superior to the Galilean lightweights. Notice that these Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem were not just in the neighborhood. They came specifically for the purpose of engaging with Jesus to investigate the orthodoxy of this popular teacher, this popular healer, this person whom some were saying was the Messiah. Remember in chapter 12, 23 through 24, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And the Pharisees heard it and said, this man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they're like trying to squash themselves. The Galilean Pharisees are trying to squash the Jesus movement by accusing him of being, uh, you know, of Satan himself. And Jesus makes them look like fools. He answers their objection with reason and logic. But like most opponents of Jesus, they weren't reasonable and logical. Have you ever noticed that? People that don't follow Christ, they're not reasonable. You can give them all the reason you want, they'll tell you about how they feel. This is how it works. So, undoubtedly, this episode was reported to the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem. They went up there and told them, not only is this guy doing all this stuff, but the crowds are saying he's the Messiah. This has to be stopped. They wanted nothing at all to do with Jesus except what was necessary to discredit and destroy him. Because what fault could they possibly find? That's all they want to do. That's all they're concerned with. So what's their accusation when they get there? In verse 2, we see the accusation itself. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Let's consider the direction of this accusation first. 
and then the standard to which they appeal and the alleged transgression itself. First notice the direction of the accusation. Why do your disciples break the tradition? Well, right away we see that the Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees were a lot like the Galilean scribes and Pharisees. They are limp-wristed, effeminate pansy men. We say that a lot, don't we? That's who they were. They were too cowardly to speak plainly about their concerns. Remember what the scribes first did when they had a problem with Jesus? Remember the scribes, they had their problem. Thank you for that. They had their problem and they, they said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. They're pondering it in their heart. They don't talk to Jesus about it. They say it to themselves. Or what the Pharisees did in Matthew 9, 11, when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and, sin, sin, and sinners, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't say it to Jesus. They went and said it to the disciples. Or what they did later in Matthew 12, 2, when the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples. They said to Jesus about the disciples. When they got a problem with the disciples, they talked to Jesus. When they got a problem with Jesus, they talked to the disciples. You see how weak that is? It's so much easier to be passive-aggressive and force people to read between the lines about areas of disagreement. But let us be bold and courageous. Right? It's the kind of people we should be. It's pathetic to go talk to other people about the problems you have with another person. Now certainly Jesus is smart enough to pick up on the insinuation though. The behavior of the disciples is taken as an indictment of Jesus' teaching and his expectations or his lack thereof of his own disciples. They're basically saying, you are not leading your disciples right. You're supposed to be a renewal movement in Judaism. Look at the, your followers are a wreck. Look what they're doing. Jesus got it. It's rightly assumed that the, the disciples of a man will behave as the teacher has instructed them. That's why when your kids act up, people see it as a reflection on you, don't they? They know you don't have your children under control. But if you want to know why someone has not instructed those under their jurisdiction to behave in a particular way, then ask them directly instead of saying, why do your kids do this? Say, why haven't you trained your kids against that? Isn't that better? Isn't that bold? Isn't that the way that men should talk? I'll take direct and aggressive over passive-aggressive every day of the week, won't y'all? You want somebody to beat around the bush and insinuate, or you want somebody with plain talk to come to you and tell you what their concerns are? Let's be what we appreciate and what we recognize is better and clear. How we want people to treat us, let's treat them the same way. Amen? Amen. So not only the direction of their accusation, but look at the standard to which they appeal in verse 2. They break the tradition of the elders. They didn't even try to hide the fact that Jesus' offense was against the tradition of the elders and not against the law of God. In their minds, the tradition of the elders was the only reliable interpretation of God's Word. By Jesus' day, the tradition of the elders had supplanted the Scripture as the supreme religious authority in the minds of Jewish leaders and of most of the people. One of their teachings actually said this, and I quote, The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. That's what they said. 
They couldn't understand how Jesus could fail to see the urgency of their priorities. In the thinking of the scribes and Pharisees who approached Jesus on this occasion, it was therefore of extreme seriousness that his disciples would transgress this tradition of the elders. They've heard that Jesus said the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was insufficient to get them to the kingdom. They've heard that Jesus quoted and refuted the tradition of the elders many times. They've heard that Jesus touched the untouchables, that he fellowshiped with tax collectors and sinners, which their tradition said you couldn't do, that he didn't observe their bi-weekly fasts. So their real question is actually quite obvious. When they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, what are they really asking? Do you reject the universally accepted tradition of the elders which was handed down to us by our fathers or not? That's what they're asking. Are you saying our tradition doesn't matter? That's what they're at. They didn't have the guts to ask that outright, but they tried to ask it in a roundabout way. They've come down from Jerusalem to find another example of Jesus' rejection of the tradition of the elders. And sure enough, they find one. You know why? Because Jesus rejected the tradition of the elders. That's why. And which, which alleged transgression do they have this time? For the disciples, they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Washing their hands had nothing to do with hygiene or germs. Jessica would be all for washing your hands if we're talking about hygiene and germs, right? Most of you moms would, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's referring to ceremonial rinsing. The purpose was to remove the ritual defilement that was caused by having touched something unclean. Could be a dead body, could be a Gentile, it could really be anything that you may have knowingly or unknowingly touched that might be unclean. So even if you didn't know if you'd touched something that might make you unclean, they thought, well, you might have and not known it, and since you don't know for sure if you have or not, you better wash your hands. See how, see how it goes? It's not just, I know I did this, so let's make myself ceremonially clean by washing my hands. It's, I don't know if I have or not, so let's do it all the time. They're big hand washers. As Michael pointed out a few weeks ago in his sermon from Leviticus 3, being ceremonially or ritualistically unclean was in no way sinful. You're not, just because you're unclean, it doesn't mean you're in sin. Unless a person needed to do something for which ritual cleanness mattered, like visiting the temple or eating food connected with sacrifice, being in a state of ritual uncleanness actually didn't matter that much according to God's law. But they, they didn't care about God's law. They cared about their tradition. Just like Jesus didn't care about their tradition, He cared about God's law. You see how they're never going to... You're never going to agree with somebody if you don't have the same ground of authority. If you're appealing to the wrong standard, you can, you can talk all day. You're never going to land at anything you actually agree on unless you agree on this is the standard. That's why, thus saith the Lord God, you lose that from a culture and you have no ground for argumentation at all. You've lost everything. Banish Christ from the public square and you have chaos. We have to have that as the bedrock, the agreed upon standard of living or we can't talk in any way that's actually productive. Can't land anywhere. Anyway, unless a, uh, so however, those who question Jesus believe that becoming ritualistically unclean is not what a person who is zealous for God would want to do. So even though they knew the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the law, 
didn't say that becoming unclean was sinful. They, they reasoned that becoming ritually unclean is not what a person who actually really is pious and really serious about their faith. It might not be sinful, but you wouldn't want to do that. It's unclean, not clean. Obviously, clean's better than unclean, right? Although uncleanness cannot be equated as positively sinful, it was seen as being a kind of second-class citizen before God. It's easy to see how a zeal for God could lead to that logic of impurity uh, being extended to you holistically, even morally. If you're unclean, well, it's, it's just not good. If ritual purity is important for certain holy occasions of ritual encounter with God, then surely God is being more honored if this state of ritual impurity is maintained more generally. If the priest needed to be in a state of ritual purity for carrying out his duties, then surely it's more pious if a person stays clean. So that's, they, they hold to that strictly. It's like the person that says, hey, it's wrong to get drunk. And if drinking four beers makes you drunk, then drinking one beer makes you one-fourth drunk. See, you shouldn't have a bit. And there's no such thing as a sip and saint. It's the same logic. You go down this trail to where drunkenness is sinful. So, oh, any drinking is sinful. Oh, being unclean is sinful you know, is a bad thing if you're going to encounter God in the, in the priesthood. So it's, it's always bad because obviously, well, obviously not. But that's where they went with it. They were like that kind of person. And as the tradition of the elders evolved, so did their emphasis on hand washing. And they used a lot of things to get people to honor it. It was like bad parents trying to get their kids to do what they want them to do. You know, like, don't pick your nose, there's a sharp toothed snail in there and it'll bite your finger off. You know, that kind of thing. And if you don't, if you don't wash your hands, then listen to this, listen to this scare tactic. Some of the rabbis taught that a certain demon named Shibtah attached itself to people's hands while they slept. And that if they were not ceremonially washed away, then he would actually enter their body through the food handled by defiled hands. They actually taught that in the tradition of the elders. Not only did they use scare tactics to get people to do what they wanted them to, the, the promise of reward. Listen to this from the tradition of the elders. Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. Man, they wanted people to eat with washed hands. You want to go to heaven? Here's the key. Wash your hands. There you go. You can rest assured you've got it. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. We've done it all through the ages, haven't we? I want you to do this, so I'm going to motivate you with promises that the Bible never makes. They were doing it all the way back in this time. And they gave elaborate stories of pietistic devotion. Man, you want to be really holy? Let me tell you what this guy did. Another rabbi taught that it would be better to walk four miles out of the way to get water than to eat with unwashed hands. A certain rabbi who was imprisoned and given a small ration of water used it to wash his hands before eating rather than to drink, claiming that he would rather die than transgress the tradition. So I've got this much water. That's enough for the ceremonial rinsing. I know I don't get to drink anything, but hey, I'm really holy now because I washed my hands. I guess I get to go to heaven. That's what they did to get people to do what they wanted them to do. But clearly... Jesus had not emphasized the importance of hand washing and they wanted to know why. Why do your disciples not wash their hands? Have you not been teaching them right? Didn't you teach them about Shibtah? I mean, your, your disciples are going to ingest the demon. That kind of foolishness. Or do you not believe the tradition of the elders? 
what's Jesus' answer? In verse 3, And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? It's all about the authority, isn't it? Submitting to the right authority. He turns it back. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, What I have is to, that would help you has been given to God, and he is not to help his father or mother or honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Let's consider now the direction of Jesus' accusation, the standard to which he appealed, and their transgression to which Jesus pointed. Look at the direction of Jesus' accusation. When these prestigious Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem and accused Jesus, they pointed out that Jesus' disciples broke the tradition of the elders, which served as a not-too-subtle jab at Jesus. Jesus was not intimidated by their position, by their credentials, or their ecclesiastical clout. Guys, let's not be intimidated by people's credentials. We're standing on the authority of the Ancient of Days. We have the authority of God's Word behind us. Why are we intimidated by how many PhDs somebody has next to their name? Jesus called fishermen, not scribes and Pharisees. You ever notice that? That's who He went and got. But all of that just caused Jesus to treat them with even more severity. Look at verse 3. Why do you, trans- why do you yourselves transgress? Notice the repetition. It's not just why do you, but why do you yourself? Jesus is going out of his way to make sure that they feel the full weight of his authority. He's not the one that's in trouble with them under their authority. They're the ones that's in trouble with him under his. And he's making that very clear. You came down here as a delegation, you scribes and Pharisees with the authority of Jerusalem coming down here. I've came down from heaven with the authority of heaven to come and tell you that your tradition is bunk. And you yourselves are violating the very tradition of a holy God. He didn't say, you know, I, I, little, little, little soapbox here, because can't help it. Gentle and lowly. Yeah, Jesus came gentle and lowly and riding on the foal of a donkey when he came into Jerusalem. And that was a king that came on a donkey. It was coming for terms of peace. Yeah, he did that in his first advent. He's coming back on a white horse with his blood dripped in, his robe dripped in blood with a tattoo on his thigh and the slain of the Lord will be many. Can you worship that Jesus? Because that's, that's who he is. He offered himself as a sacrifice so we could make peace with God. Now he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And now we've got white horse Jesus that we're dealing with. Who is going about conquering and to conquer. Can you worship that one? Not the feather-head, limp-wristed, effeminate pansy Jesus. Dale Partridge's book, The Manliness of Christ, highly recommend it. Check that out. Great book. It's a counter to this emphasis on, you know, doing away with masculinity. God made men, and that's a good thing. Do you know it's good to be a man? It's good to be a woman. You know what, though? It's good to be a man. And we need to be men. And Jesus was one, wasn't he? calls them out directly. So the direction of his accusation is direct and to them. You yourselves, so direct. And the standard to which Jesus appealed, look, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
So you want to know if I recognize the authority of the tradition of the elders? Well, let's put a pin in that. He doesn't even address their question. They're actually, notice this. He sidesteps what they say. Why do your, their question to him is, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? That's the question. Why do they break the tradition of the elders and eat with unwashed hands? He doesn't answer it. He turns around and just accuses them of where they actually are wrong instead of addressing where they say that he's wrong. You know you don't have to answer every accusation against you because you're going to get a whole bunch now. And we are so eager to be liked that when somebody in the world wants to throw an accusation out at us, we think we have to convince them that their accusation just ain't true. You're a racist. Guys, you're going to get called a racist every day of your life. You, you can't help it these days. You know why? Because you're white. And if you're not white, then you're black, then you're white adjacent. Or you're an Uncle Tom. Right? Or you're a bigot. You're going to get called a bigot all the time. Why? Because you say sin is sinful. You're, you're guilty of religious oppression. You're going, to get, you're going to get told that. You're beating people up. You're threatening them with the threatenings of the law. And that's unloving. You're going to be told that every day. And you can explain and explain and explain. Or you can just say, you know what? Except you repent, you shall likewise perish. You know that? You don't have to make them believe that you're such a great guy. Jesus didn't do that. He recognized their standard was wrong, so he didn't engage them with their standard. If their standard is wrong, I don't need to convince them that I'm okay according to their standard. I need to sidestep their standard and return to what does God's Word say and stand there. And that's what we see Jesus doing, isn't it? It's exactly what he does. He puts a pin in their accusation and he wants to point out their complete disregard for the Ancient of Days. The, the tradition of the elders say, I'm going to something older than that. What about the Ancient of Days and what he says? That's what matters, isn't it? He accuses them of transgressing the commandment of God. Jesus is fearlessly showing that the commandment of God and the tradition of the elders cannot both be true. The Pharisees and scribes consider them to be one and the same. And if there was any alleged contradiction, then the tradition was used as a lens through which to interpret the Scriptures instead of it being the other way around. They didn't look at their tradition and say, what, are, what does God's Word say? Talk to these woke, the woke mob today and say, hey, what does God's Word say? No, no, no. You've got to interpret the tradition. You've got to interpret the Scriptures through their woke lens, not interpret their woke lens through the Scriptures. They won't allow you. It's the same thing. It's the new orthodoxy. It's a different religion, even if they attach Jesus to it, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing. It's a different weight. It's a different measure. There's nothing new under the sun. Not only that, but, you know, this has been that way for so long. The Roman Catholics look to church dogma over what the script, uh, to discover what the Scriptures really mean. And in much the same way, many Protestants give more authority to the pronouncements of their denomination, to their confessions of faith, and, so, and sometimes to what their favorite Bible teacher or preacher thinks than what the Bible actually says, don't they? Hey, I love the creeds. But you know what I'm going to test every creed according to? What, is the script, what do the Scriptures teach? That's why we don't baptize our babies. Westminster Confession, it's a great confession, but they're R-O-N-G-E, so we don't do that. Sorry, Cody, I had to do a little jab. Right? He submits to Manual Fellowship, and we really appreciate that, don't we? But I love the confessions. I respect the men who worked so hard to search the Scriptures and who gave their best efforts to accurately handle the Word. But what do we say? Sola... Scriptura. That's where we go. 
My heart is held captive to the Word of God. Show me in the Scriptures. When you get this backwards, you do what they did, and you default to your tradition. Your tradition becomes the standard. Notice that Jesus doesn't even call it the tradition of the elders, but He instead discredits it by calling it their tradition. They said, why do you transgress the tradition of the elders? Why do you, your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't call it that here, do they? Jesus calls it their tradition. What's His point? Though some core elements of the tradition of the elders were clear enough, there was no consist, uh, consensus from area to area or even from rabbi to rabbi. Their tradition was held within an ongoing, open-ended discourse. And out of this tradition, Pharisaic practice would emerge and would remain until successfully challenged or altered. Though the Pharisees considered their tradition to be binding on everybody, they were constantly opposed by alternative views debated by different rabbis. Now Jesus points to one particularly dastardly element of their tradition. Let's look at that, the actual transgression that they say that, that, uh, that Jesus points out that they're guilty of in verses 4 through 6. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you is given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus just keeps punching. He said, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now the contrast is made even more clear. What God said in verse 4 is set over against what you say. Or merely human rules, as he calls them in, nine, in chapter 9, the commandments of man, are contrasted with the divine law of God. What does God say? Well, he says two things. Honor your father and mother, he quotes scripture, and he who speaks evil against father and mother is to be put to death. Let's break that down. Honor your father and mother. The first law quoted here is Exodus 20 verse 12. When we hear honor your father and mother, we think as long as you're under my roof, you'll do what you're told. Isn't that what we think about honor father and mother? That's, a, that's about as far as we think it goes. That is an absolutely ridiculous minimization of the nature of this command. Let me point that out. Well, you're going to have to do what I say till you're 18. I've never even seen in the Bible where it says honor your father and mother until you're 18. You ever read that? I've not seen that. I've heard people say it, and I'm always like, what Bible are you reading? That's the tradition of man. That's not in the Bible. That's not what God's Word means. What does honor mean? Kabed. It means to give uh, weight to, to be burdened by, to be brought to difficulty, to endure something burdensome, costly, or heavy. Clearly, Jesus applies it to a child's responsibility to provide for the parents in their old age, that they are responsible. Their parents raised them when they were kids, and now their parents are their responsibility to make sure they're okay into their old age, that their parents are to matter to them. Guys, your parents are to matter to you. Amen? The aged are not the responsibility of society. They are not even the responsibility... Uh, uh, they are not even responsible themselves to plan for them being able to not be a burden to their children. Do you know that? I just got to make sure when I'm old my kids don't have to take care of me. Guys, the Bible says your kids are supposed to take care of you. That's what it says. That's the reason I tell people, why are you having so many kids? How are you going to afford that? That's my retirement plan. I got six of them so far. 
that they're an asset, not a liability. We've let culture turn that completely on its head because we violated God's law according to our tradition. We're guilty. We do the same thing. Well, this is how things work. It's not how it's supposed to work. We do things God's way and it works. Parents are responsible for children when the children are young. Children are responsible to care for their parents when they are old. That's Social Security right there. That's That will work. Other plans care against the family. They say, no, the family's not responsible for the aged. Society's responsible to make sure that all the aged are taken care of. And what does it lead to? Societal collapse. Which is what we're right in the middle of. It cannot and will not work. It ends up saying that it ends up making people actually believe your children are not an asset to you because you're going to be kept up by society, not by your children. And then what do you get? People who think the good life's not having kids and they live in nasal gaze their entire life. Navel gaze their entire life. That's what it leads to. We've got to do things God's way. But not only honor your father and mother, but notice the next thing he quotes. He who speaks evil of father and mother. The second law quoted is Exodus 21, 17. A more specific application of the same principle. If you give weight to your parents, if you are willing to be burdened by them, if you're willing for their twilight years to be costly or heavy to you, then you absolutely wouldn't speak evil of them, would you? God places you with them. He placed you with them. He blessed you by their care. You know how I know? You didn't die. You're still here. Well, you just don't know what I went through. I know you're still here and somebody nurtured you and you're still here. Man, my parents were just so awful. Hey, don't speak evil of your parents. Honor your father and mother. Do not speak evil of your father or your mother. And now he's entrusted, whether you like it or not, you were entrusted to their care and they did whatever, as much as they did do, you should be grateful for it. And now God has entrusted their care to you. That's how it works. It's what God's Word says. God forbid you speak evil of that blessing or that responsibility. Literally, God forbid. When I say God forbid, I mean literally. God forbids it. He who speaks evil of father or mother. That's what it says, isn't it? And how serious was he about that prohibition? Well, let me show you how serious. He who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. It was a capital offense. Woo! Man, that can't be right. That's what it says, though, isn't it? I just couldn't conceive of a God who could condone the death penalty. You ever heard anybody say that? Well, I hope you stop worshiping that figment of your imagination, repent of your idolatry, and worship the true and the living God who reveals Himself in the pages of Scripture. Because he's, he's real, and your imaginary God's not, and you're going to be judged by this imaginary God that you just can't imagine worshiping, whether you like it or not. That's right. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. We see the death penalty commanded numerous times in the Old Testament, but it's repeated in the New Testament. Here by Jesus, but also in, Ro- in Romans 13 where he says that the government does not bear the sword, the executioner's sword, in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
The Bible repeatedly says that the death penalty reduces wickedness. Deuteronomy 21.20 They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall sit him down and have a talk with him and he will straighten up. No, all the men of his city shall stone him to death so that you will remove this evil from your midst and all of Israel will hear it and fear. If a man has committed anything worthy of death, he is to be put to death. Man! Wait, are we supposed to believe the whole Bible or just the, uh, the parts that you can cross-stitch on a pillow and lay your head on and feel good about it now? That's God's Word. As much as John 3.16 is God's Word, you know what that is? It's God's Word. And how dare we be embarrassed by what God's Word says? That's been the problem is that we have, we've tiptoed around what God's Word teaches for so long that now people are saying, hey, a homosexual said, what's wrong with that? And then we say, well, the Bible says it's wrong. And they point back to verses like that. Well, the Bible says this. And we go, oh, I don't know what to say. You know why? Because we have swallowed their tradition instead of holding to the Word of God. We're a bunch of Pharisees who are more comfortable with what our tradition says or what culture says than what God's Word says. We actually cringe when we read God's Word. It's blasphemous. It's idolatrous. It's wicked. It's damnable. Paul seems to allude to this text in Acts 25.11 when he says, If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. He's saying the death penalty, hey, it's right for everybody else and it's right for me too. If I'm guilty, you need to execute me. In our culture, we see capital punishment of the guilty as barbaric, but we see the slaughter of the innocent in abortion as compassionate to the women who are allowed to murder their unborn children so they can get a college degree because how dare we hold them back from something like that. Well, God's Word, that's barbaric. Look at that. They're, killing, they're saying we should kill somebody that speaks evil of father or mother. They're saying that they should be put to death. Well, you're saying that babies should be executed so moms can go have a nice career. Somebody's going to die. It's going to be the guilty or it's going to be the innocent. Which standard are you, are you more comfortable with? I say we should say what God's Word says and not be embarrassed about it in the least. When we reject God's design for society, the society will enact cursed innovations that erode the very fabric of society itself, namely the church and the family. Now moving off my soapbox, what they say. What was, it, what, what was their tradition that they violated God's word for, that this command to honor father and mother and not to speak evil or you're worthy of the death penalty? But you say, he says... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, and he is not to honor his father or mother. How is this tradition related to the scripture that Jesus quoted? Well, many people didn't want to honor their parents. You know that's not new. It's not just today that many people don't want to honor their parents. They didn't then either. They felt they had bad parents. They didn't want to bless them by caring for them like the law commanded. They would tell of all their parents' failures, of all the ways that they were abused, of all the bad experiences that they had in their childhood. They, would, they wanted to get back at their parents. And in some circles, the tradition of the elders provided a legal loophole involving a vow that allowed people to sidestep the obligation to care for their parents in their declining years. 
There was a Pharisaic tradition which elevated the significance of vows above that of other duties, including duties to parents or children. In this way, it opened up the possibility of of just such sidestepping. Vows are important in the Old Testament, aren't they? Numbers 30, verse 2, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So if somebody really wanted to get at their parents, then the tradition of the elders said, well, if they don't want to take care of their parents like the law requires, then they can make a vow that anything that they have that should have helped their parents is given to God so then they don't have to take care of their parents and they can keep their assets and they can live on it and when they die, all of the money that, that they've got, that they got to keep and use for themselves, it doesn't go to their children either. It goes to the temple treasury so that we get the money. Can you see why that maybe the Pharisees liked that tradition? Can you see why the people liked it? They didn't have to take care of mom and dad. They didn't have to get rid of their stuff. They got to live off all of their stuff as long as they lived. When they died, their kids didn't get it. But guess what? They're dead anyway. So what does it matter? It's like people who... You know the Bible says about a righteous man? He leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I've I've talked to so many people. They they make all their money and then they try to live it up and enjoy every dime of it because they can't take it with us. Well, what are you going to do for their kids? Well, I, I did my own way and they need to do theirs too. That's ungodly. We should be living for multi-generational faithfulness. We should be living to bless future generations. This cut at the responsibility toward parents and the responsibility toward children. It was a cursed innovation known as Corbin. And Jesus called it out explicitly and showed them, you think you're holy? You think that I need to be walking according to your tradition of making sure I wash my hands so that the Shibta don't get me? No, I'm not concerned with that. I am concerned with how you are speaking evil of your parents, which, which God's Word says is worthy of capital punishment, and you're doing that so you can keep your money in your pockets. I am concerned with that. Scribes and Pharisees knew the Ten Commandments well, and they could recite them easily from memory. They were the most educated of all the Jewish men and they were considered the supreme authorities on Scripture as well as tradition. They couldn't have possibly failed to see that this tradition directly violated God's commandment to honor one's father and mother. They knowingly replaced God's specific command with their own contradicting tradition. You know, we can excuse a lot of sin in our lives when we play the victim. Identifying as a victim is real big today. I mean, how much privilege do you have? That's what intersectionality is all about. How many layers of, of disadvantage do you have? These, these, you know, are you in a position, are you, are you up here where you've got all this privilege or are you maybe uh, a minority? Or are you maybe a sexual minority? Or are you maybe poor? Or are you maybe uh, fat? There's, fat? there's fit privilege now too, right? And now it's, it's bad to say that, hey, you might ought to lose some weight so you'll be healthy. <gasps> How dare you? All of this, we excuse everything because I'm a victim. 
Then my parents were so mean to me, I don't have to care for my parents. Now I have dreams, so then this baby's an inconvenience, so abortion's excused. I deserve to have love, and I was born this way, so homosexuality is excused. I've worked all day, and I need to sit in the recliner and relax, so lazy husbands are excused. A husband doesn't lead well or help around the house, and I'm exhausted, so an insubmissive, sexually unavailable wife is excused. America's systematically racist, so therefore burning down all the cities because somebody resisted arrest and then died out of a fentanyl overdose. It's excused. Why? Because they're victims. So we can do anything we want if we're victims. Nothing's changed. Our victim status excuses everything in the world. Why? Because we don't care what God's Word says. We care what our tradition says. What does our culture say is acceptable? And although Jesus had an alleged, an alleged transgression, they had a real transgression... By this, you invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. This is the second time that people have came to Jesus over His disciples not honoring the tradition of the elders. Remember in chapter 9 when John's disciples came to Jesus and they said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples don't fast? Do you remember that? And Jesus answered and He said, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But, this is a a, a text a lot of people miss, but it's important. No one puts a patch of unshrunk, unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse terror results. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Say, what did, why did Jesus, after talking about fasting, go into weddings and wedding garments and wineskins? Well, fasting wasn't a requirement of the law. There's nowhere in the Bible that commands you to fast except for on the Day of Atonement, one time a year. But the the scribes and Pharisees and even the disciples of John, they fasted twice a week. Disciples didn't obey that. They didn't live according to that. You know why? Because Jesus didn't care about the tradition of the elders. He did care about the Word of God. He lived perfectly according to the Word of God, the actual higher standard of God's law, not their modified standard. And a wedding was a big deal at the time of Christ, and people honored the one who invited them to the wedding by wearing fine garments. Remember later in Matthew 22, the slaves went into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But the king came and looked over the dinner guests, and he saw a man there that was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him in outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, and few are chosen. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm coming to get my actual people. And I'm inviting everybody, evil and good, to come and to be with me at the wedding feast. But when you come, you have to be wearing the wedding garment. And if you aren't wearing the wedding garment, then you're, you're, you're not fit for the wedding and you're going to be judged accordingly. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, they had on a garment of righteousness. It was their tradition of the elders. And they didn't think it was perfect, but they thought it was pretty good. You know, it might need a patch here or there to make it better. You know, it's a good tradition, but we might be able to make it better. 
Let's sew a patch on. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Your whole tradition of fasting twice a week and everything else in that tradition of elders, it doesn't need patchwork. As a matter of fact, if I sew the true intention of God's law, this new patch on your old garment, it's just going to make the whole thing worse. We've got to do away with your whole tradition and realize your tradition is wrong. My law is right and you stand guilty before me. And if you want to be... A wedding guest, you've got to be clothed with a righteousness beyond what you're clothing yourself with in that tradition. You've got to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually destitute. I'm coming to you with absolutely nothing. I know I'm guilty. My only hope is Christ. The Pharisees could never get there because they had attained their own righteousness. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness. And they were short. The whole thing had to be done away with. What do we find out when we look at the law? When we look at the law, you don't find out how good you are. You find out how guilty you are. The law is our schoolmaster to show us our guilt. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I had not known sin but by the law. Whatsoever things the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth might be stopped. The mouth that would justify itself, it stops that. And the whole world might become guilty before God. You're guilty! We embrace the whole law and we recognize our guilt and we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus who came gentle and lowly riding on an ass to go to his death to pay for where we're guilty. But he has arisen to the right hand of the throne of God and now we can live according to that law by his spirit in us as the people of God. It's a fully orbed gospel. And it's a fully orbed gospel we've got to return to. And we've got to go and make disciples of the nations according to this standard. Saying, no, no, no. You're saying that we're the church needs to be the repenting ones? No. The church is God's bride. And we're going to look to God's law. And we're going to call you to it. And we're going to lift up our voice like a trumpet. And we're going to show the people their transgressions and call them to repent of their sins. Trust in the completed work of Christ. And to go forward obeying King Jesus or to be put under His feet. That's the gospel. The forgotten gospel and the only gospel that can save this wretched world and set things right once again. Let's hold to it. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder. Lord, that our traditions and our standards are never high enough. Lord, we might be good. We might be living up to some standards that are man-made and we might think we're nailing it. But Lord, when we compare ourselves to the snowy right righteousness of your law, we come up short. Lord, help us to cast ourselves at your feet as sinners, depending on your mercy, to trust in your shed blood for the remission of our sins. And Lord, make us holy, even as you are holy. It's in Jesus' name, amen.